Hi, so good to be here with you today to talk about Abraham. I am Lynn Kitchens. I'm part of the teaching team. Welcome, West Campus. So glad everyone's here today. Uh, Thanks for being here and loving God and loving each other because we all support and encourage each other in our faith. And you're the part of that. You're the big part of that. So we appreciate your commitment. Working on this lesson, um, I began thinking about eyesight. And until I was 40 years old, I was blessed with really good eyesight. And then when I turned 40 a couple years ago, (laughs) why are you laughing? (laughs) Things began to get blurry. And so I was working with my eye doctor on some contacts, and I was never satisfied because nothing ever looked like it used to look. Nothing was as clear and perfect. And finally, my doctor got the idea that this is what I was thinking, and he looked at me and said, well, you know, you will never see as well as you once did. And I was like, what? I could not believe it. It was such bad news for me. That's the bad news. The good news is that there are some things we don't need to see with our eyes. That's the good news. Today we're going to look at what it looks like to live each day by faith and not by sight, specifically in areas that really confront us all. We read these stories in Abraham and think, oh my gosh, what does this have to do with me? He shows us how to use faith in conflict and strife when we face enemies and when we have battles, when we're waiting, when there are delays in our life, and when we're celebrating victories. So today we're going to be able to look at all those things and how we can apply faith in our lives. And, you know, sometimes I even think, why do we want to face these issues in faith? Why does it really matter? I'm just going to take care of it. You know why? Here's the simple answer. We can be happier. We can have peace. We can know God more. That's why. We can bless others more. That's why. That's what we want to do. Instead of fearfully living out our lives under our control, we can rest in the mighty, generous hand of God and rejoice and live in the midst of his promises and blessings. What a wonderful way to do life. You read the story of Thomas in your homework, the disciple. His friend Jesus had resurrected from the dead, and all the disciples had seen him, but not Thomas. And so Thomas said, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe he's alive till I touch him, till I see him, till I use these eyes. He had to see him to believe him. And so the amazing moment when Thomas was in a room and Jesus appeared to him and offered him to look at him and touch his side and feel the wounds in his hands... Thomas fell to the ground and said, my Lord and my God. And when I read this story, I sort of want Jesus to applaud Thomas because Jesus went from being his friend to being his God. I want Jesus to sort of applaud his faith here. But Jesus really rebukes him and said, you you believe in me now because you've seen me. But how blessed are all those people that are going to believe in me. They have not seen me. That's faith. That's what faith is. 
That takes a vision adjustment. It takes a vision adjustment. That means we believe God, not because of what we see here, but what we know to be true here. This is where the core of our beliefs lie. This is where our faith lies. This is where the word of God resides. And it's these inner eyes of our heart that gaze upon the greatness and the goodness of God. It comes from the inner eyes of our heart. When these eyes are strong, inwardly, we can believe things we don't see outwardly. So we have to exercise these eyes. About 20 years ago or more, I was having lunch with a woman and she was kind of sharing her faith journey with me. And she had been to some conferences and to some special meetings and she had seen what she would describe as many pretty incredible, miraculous things and some miraculous signs. And while I was listening to her share, I was just kind of excited for her and listening to the story. We finished our lunch, we stood up to leave, and she said, you know, now I know that God is real because I've seen him do these things. And I thought, that is so cool. And I went home, and I sat on my couch, and I thought, and I thought. And then I got disturbed in my spirit because I said, you know, what about Jesus' words? Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. That's what faith is. We don't have to see things to believe God is real. We trust. Look at Hebrews 11 on your verse sheet. Faith is the, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Second Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And don't you know, don't you know people like this? There's no Christian more strong, more content, more fruitful than the Christian who believes God without needing to see things from God. That's the gift of faith. Their eyes are open to the promises, the realities of God. They walk through life in true faith. And Abraham was such a man as this. In today's stories, weren't you just kind of blown away by Abraham's faith? It's very obvious. He is believing without seeing. He's viewing his life through the eyes of his heart. So I want us to see what that looks like. We're going to join Abraham as he's returning from Egypt. Deb taught about him last week being in Egypt because there was a famine. And uh, when you're envisioning in the first verse him leaving Egypt and coming back to the land God had given him, I don't want you to picture 10 or 20 people, Lot's family and Abraham's family, walking along on some dusty path with a couple camels following them. I want you to envision a parade, a caravan. This was huge. Abraham had hundreds of servants, let alone um, other people with him, and Lot did as well. Herds. Of animals. I want you to picture colorful fabrics, tents blowing in the wind. Listen to the sound of the sheep bleeding as they cross the desert, as they cross the fertile lands. Look at herds of camels, donkeys, goats shuffling through the sand. 
Look at how the sun is hitting the silver and gold utensils that they're carrying with them and glittering and gleaming. It's a parade. It's huge. The return of Abraham and Lot. They are wealthy sheiks crossing the lands of Egypt. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So let's look at how this conflict's arisen how faith is going to be um, shown through Abraham. You know, it's probably true that not only did Abraham leave a physical desert when he came back into this area, he was, I think, also leaving a spiritual desert behind. You don't see when he's in Egypt any communication between him and God. You don't see that happening. So I really think uh, these verses emphasize in those couple of lines, he's going back. He's going back physically, but he's going back spiritually, where his tent had been at the beginning, to the place he had made an altar to God. And again, Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord. And the text wants to remind us, hey, there's Canaanites, there's Perizzites in this land. And that's just a great visual for us because they had false gods everywhere. But we envision Abraham making his way back to that altar and boldly calling on the name of the one true God. He returns to his worship. Now Abraham and Lot had become so wealthy, the land can't sustain them. How are their animals going to get enough food? How are their animals going to get enough water? And the Canaanites and Perizzites, remember, they lived there. Guess who probably was occupying the best of the land? The Canaanites and the Perizzites, getting the best of the food, getting the best of the water. Now, these people groups were also always a potential threat uh, to Abraham and even Lot at this point. Because, you know, here's these two wealthy guys that have come from nowhere and look at everything they have. And hey, did you notice how much they quarrel and bicker between the herdsmen? That would be a really easy place for an enemy to come in and cause confusion and maybe plunder and uh, cause some destruction to those families. So this couldn't happen. Okay, a couple things we can realize here about wealth. One, we can see it's not a sin to be wealthy. If God's blessed you in that way, if you didn't get it illegally, dishonestly, without integrity, (laughs) if God gave it to you, it can be a blessing. But number two, along with great wealth can come what? Great conflict and strife, often between friends and relatives. So you have to be um, on top of that. These verses tell us Abraham and Lot could dwell together no longer. So let's see how Abraham approached that. Verse 8. 
Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and your herdsmen and mine, for we're kinsmen. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was the Lord before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I am just kind of blown away by how Abraham responds here. Because he has faith in the promises of God, he can respond selflessly. He can respond with kindness and generosity. It's because he has no fear of his future. He has no fear of God in his life. So first he initiates restoration with his nephew Lot. He doesn't behave like some arrogant, stingy property owner. He behaves like an uncle. A nice and a caring uncle. He says, don't let there be strife between us, between my herdsmen and yours. We are kinsmen. Another translation is we are brothers. This really troubles Abraham. In a conflict, his priority was his relationship, not his property. By separating physically from each other, Abraham knew that this conflict would end. And I was thinking about this and thought, you know, when we have a really close relationship with God, we understand the value of relationships. You know, it's uh, when our hearts are not filled with God and there's this hole that's created in our hearts that's meant to be filled with God, if we're filling it with a bunch of other things, we're going to trample over anybody that gets in our way because we're trying to fill this with something other than God. If that had been true for Abraham, he would have been trampling over Lot to be greedy and possessive of this land. But he wasn't. Possessions should never become more important than people. Don't you get so sad when you meet someone and they know of someone whose whole family has been torn apart after a relative dies because they're fighting and struggling for what they think is theirs and what they want materially and what possessions they want. And sometimes brothers and sisters never talk to each other again. Such a sad statement for our world. Because Abraham loved God so much, he could also love Lot selflessly. He set aside his rights. Doesn't that kind of amaze you? Okay, who was the oldest one here? Abraham, the senior. Who was the uncle? Abraham, nephew, just as Lot. Who was the chief of, I mean, just his nephew. Who was the chief of the clan? Wasn't Abraham the one that received the call from God to go to this land? Wasn't Abraham the one who was promised to possess this land? And yet, Abraham lets his rights go to the side. And I don't know about you, but in a conflict with someone, I think that is the very hardest thing to do. 
When you know I've got a right to this. When you know I'm entitled to this. And don't get in my way here. Nobody had more rights and entitlement in this story than Abraham. And instead of exercising that right, I'm the recipient of God's promises. I'm the special one. He could have chosen his land first. He looks at the land with eyes of his heart, with eyes of faith. He's learned a lesson in Egypt. No one should sink so low as to use deception to try to be blessed. Just rest. In the goodness and the promises of God. He was a child of God. He knew God would take care of his needs. And what we can learn there is when we are confident of God's faithfulness to us, we will seek the best for others. How much easier to do that? Look what Psalm 23 says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then Abraham chooses generosity. He just says, okay, Lot, you pick the land. I'll take the leftovers. Unlike Abraham, who was walking by faith, Lot is walking by sight. And so he chooses selfishly. He looks up with selfish, eager eyes. He sees, hey, the most lush land is near the Jordan Valley, and I'm going to take that for my own. At that time, it says that that looked like the Garden of the Lord. That would be the Garden of Eden. That's how beautiful it was. They compared to Egypt, and what that meant was both had areas, Egypt had the Nile, where there was a river, there were mountains, there was lush vegetation along the sides of the river. We read that the land may have been fertile, but did you notice something ominous in these verses that they want to make sure we understand? Lot was pitching his tent near danger and evil. His material blessing was camping next to moral blight. Lot's selfish choice was really the biggest mistake of his life. He pitched his tent near the evil town of Sodom, and tent walls are really thin. And that influence permeated right through those tent walls and made their way into Sodom's heart, I mean Lot's heart, and he could not walk away from them. He was influenced by the sin that was around him. In fact, these are called wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And in the book of Genesis, there is no harsher language describing sinners against the Lord. Here's what Luther says about this. Let us learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unaware with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Come back in a couple weeks for the rest of that story. Here's what Abraham believed that Lot did not. In God alone, we have abundant possession. 
In God alone, we have abundant possessions. And we learn from Abraham, when God is large in our hearts, we will respond to conflict with large amounts of generosity and kindness and selflessness. When we believe that we have abundant possessions in God, we won't begrudge the possessions of others. Second Peter tells us, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And so now in the providence of God we see Abraham and he is alone. And here's what we maybe don't think about. That makes him sad. Think how much he loved Lot. He's alone. And I really think it was upsetting to him to lose Lot in that relationship. And so what's the best remedy when we're sad? The word of God. And God in his kindness comes to speak his word to Abraham to comfort him and remind him of the blessings and his future. And what I love is Abraham displays his faith because he's willing to wait for these. Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Did you notice how the Lord is contrasting Lot with Abraham here? How Lot responded, who walked by sight, and Abraham who walked by faith. You know, God's divine purpose for Abraham was so much bigger, so much broader and fuller than what Lot had grabbed on his own. So the prospect is afforded. Lot had lifted up his eyes to fulfill his own plans, but now with great authority, God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes. Look everywhere around you. And see what I have for you. Abraham's prospect was so much more glorious than Lot's. And here's why. It had the words of God behind it. The promise is given. Look all these directions. I will give you this land and your offspring forever. And so Abraham turns his eyes of faith. He's looking at every meadow. He's looking at the valleys. He's looking at a river. He's looking at the mountains. The hills. He's envisioning a child in his future. He's envisioning his descendants one day on this land. And if you notice when we read this for the first time, God promises the land to Abraham also as well as his offspring. And then the possession is claimed. While Abraham obeys God, he walks up and down the land of promise. His steps are steps of faith in a future possession and a future people. And as he's taking his steps, 
He is claiming the promises of God. And I thought it was interesting that even the future people are connected to the land. They're called the dust of the earth. What happens next? Just like Lot, we immediately see Abraham move his tents. But unlike Lot, Abraham's move was motivated by faith in the word of God. So Abraham firmly pitches his tents next to the solid oaks of Mamre in Hebron. Hebron, isn't this cool? It means fellowship. It means fellowship. A strong faith will bring strong fellowship with God. And that's where Abraham decides to stay. Because why? He's fellowshipping with God. He's built another altar. He's fellowshipping with God who's reaffirmed his promises to him. These oak trees were a real distinct large group of trees owned by Mamre, the Amorite, located southwest of a future Jerusalem. And there's one tree actually still standing. Douglas is going to put it up for us. Look at this. Is this not amazing? People think this tree is 5,000 years old. 5,000 years old. It's called the Oak of Abraham. A church was built next to it in the 1870s. And tradition holds this is where Abraham pitched his tent in the story we just read. And that this is where Abraham, in two weeks, we're going to look at where he stood with three angels looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we don't know for sure if that's reality, um, but they sure have worked at preserving it and the fact that there's a church there but I believe there probably was a bed of big oak trees right there and this is the vicinity and that could be one of the trees that Abraham was near and listen to this the main trunk of this tree died in 1996 1996 just kind of amazing to me and then a new sprout came out in 1998. So they're saying it's still alive and it's the only Christian shrine in the land of Hebron. And here's what everyone around there believes. It's going to live until Jesus Christ returns. Wouldn't that be something? Anyway, I just thought that is so fun. I'm glad we found that picture. Thanks, Douglas. So Abraham's tent's going to stand strongly next to this tree in the will of God as he waits for God to keep his promises. And here's what we learn from Abraham. Divine favor and fellowship with God accompany those who believe in God's word and trust in its perfect timing in their lives. Look at Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Okay, we like to think when we're in the will of God and we're trusting him, only good things are going to happen to us. And there's actually churches that like to teach us that. Um, which is sad because the reality, just like Abraham, we're going to face conflicts while we're waiting on our blessings. <laughs> we're going to receive some blessings now and some blessings in the future. Life was not always easy and fun for our Lord, for the disciples, for the Old Testament saints. Here's what they did possess, an inner peace, 
an inner purpose, and the courage to face life's battles in the strength and power of God. Because God was the center of their lives, they were prepared for any battle that might come before him, and this was true for Abraham. We're going to see when a battle comes his way, he's prepared. Did you guys ever cram for a test in high school or college? Benita says, no, she never did. I do not believe her. <laughs> How many of you ever stayed up all night cramming for stuff? Oh, man, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. How well is the knowledge embedded into your heart when you do that? <laughs> and then, if you even had it for that long, when you walk away from the test, how much of it is still embedded in your heart? Okay, why as Christians do we think when a battle heads our way or conflict heads our way, I'm going to cram the night before and read the Bible and I'm going to be able to overcome it? Why do we think that? That's not going to happen. Consistent communion with God is the best preparation for each crisis that may face an unbeliever. Abraham was not caught off guard here when a battle came because he was having consistent communion with God. This is what makes us respond in the power and the wisdom of the Lord. So while Abraham is in fellowship, in the town of fellowship with God, a battle begins to brew around him. And little did Abraham know that within this battle was God's plan to fulfill his purpose, to make Abraham's name great, to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Chapter 14 is going to describe a typical battle in the ancient world where powerful nations form a coalition and come in to plunder city and states that they want to make them what they call vassal states where they have to send their money and allegiance to these more powerful kings. Chapter 14 is about the area in the Jordan Valley, near the Dead Sea, near the border of the land promised to Abraham. These eastern kings wanted to keep that Jordan Valley area open for them because it was a trade route to Egypt. They wanted the profit from there. But these Jordanian kings in the area decide they're going to rebel after 13 years of being subject to, I'm going to say his name right, King Kador Leomer. It looks like King Cheddar something. I was thinking about King Cheddar Cheese. Okay, King Chador Leomer and three Easter kings aligned with him. This didn't go well when those people decided to rebel. And so those four kings that were, came, began fighting the five Jordanian kings. They overtook them. They conquered them. They took the goods of Sodom, Gomorrah, and they departed in victory. But they also took something else near and dear to the heart of Abraham. Look at 14.12. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Okay, you studying in your homework the sad truth that Lot, who had what? Pitched his tent near Sodom. Where do we find him now? He's living in Sodom. He has possessions. He has his family. He's made himself comfortable there, walking by sight and not by faith. 
had really not served Lot well. And I wonder, I sort of picture Lot on a camel being carried away from the Jordan Valley into the eastern area if any of that was coming across his mind, that he was being led into the land of his enemies. But then I start thinking, you know, even when Lot was home, he was in the land of his enemies. People who stood against the living God, and he just put up with it. And I guess this is what happens often to us when we find ourselves walking by sight. First, what happens? Our hearts are captured, and then we're carried away, and we get complacent about it. Abraham's response to this crisis is like amazing to me. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions. He brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Okay, how old is Abraham? Did you guys think that when you were reading this? I'm picturing this guy in a robe and a long white beard trying to get everyone. He, he was strong. He had the strength of the Lord. And he'd made an alliance with the Amorites who lived in this land so he could stay where he was for a while that was a great thing because in that alliance they were required to fight his battles with him so he had extra men to go into this battle so you want to envision this one day abraham's near his tents this disheveled breathless man runs up to him he's come from the battle and he knows i got to get to abraham why because that's how big his reputation was that's how powerful he was. That's how mighty Abraham was looked at. He had a reputation as being a clan leader, being blessed. Abraham is called in these verses for the first time the Hebrew. And what this means is he descended from Eber in chapter 10, if you want to go back and look at that. And the word Hebrew comes from the verb meaning to cross over. Or to pass through, so they would use that word in the future to describe nomadic people who were going from one place to another. So maybe this broken, breathless fugitive that stands before Abraham the Hebrew also knew that if he told Abraham his lot was taking, maybe Abraham would take some action. And he would have been right. But what if Abraham was having lunch next to the tent and this man ran up and told him this story and Abraham says, serves him right, living in Sodom. He got what he deserved. When you make your bed, you have to line it. I wonder how he feels now that he took the best of the land. Or here's our favorite. I told him so. Pass the olives. Couldn't, couldn't he have responded like that? 
I love it because he didn't. No root of bitterness had even taken root in Abraham's heart. He loves Lot. Remember, when we're confident in God's faithfulness, we're going to seek the best for others. So by faith, Abraham was enabled to feel sympathy and concern for the simple reason that God was all in all to Abraham. So he runs without even a thought of not rescuing Lot. And he gets on his battle clothes and he grabs 318 of men that he's trained. He grabs his allies, the Amorites. He pursues the four kings for 120 miles all the way to Dan. He waits till dark. He divides his people. They come in and surprise them, overtake them, finish the battle, brings the people and the possessions back. I thought, I just want to be like Abraham when I face battles in my life. Spiritual battles, emotional battles, even physical battles. We can be prepared. We can be as courageous as he was because we believe what Abraham believed. We're knowing our divine commander is at our side and so we can approach difficulties in faith and not fear. Our divine commander God is at our side in our battles, in our conflicts, in the things that hurt us. God is at our side when we're hurting, when we need him, when we're confused, when we're in the heat of the battle. Look what Joshua 1.9 says. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. John 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 1 John 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Now, if you're like me, you like to think if you've had some kind of victory and some kind of battle, whoa, the hard part is over. Okay, that's when we're about to get tested. This is what happened to Abraham. Would he display the same faith in victory, this incredible victory after the battle? Because success is a good test of character. So let's see what happens. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of, okay, I'm going to say it right, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom said to him, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I wouldn't take a thread or a sandal strap even, or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. 
Two kings standing in front of Abraham in the valley of Shava. One represents walking by sight. One represents walking by faith. One represents evil and worldliness. One represents the goodness, the power, the holiness of God. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem, where you see Salem is at the end of the word Jerusalem. His name, Melchizedek, meant king of righteousness. He steps towards the victorious general Abraham and offers him bread and wine, simply bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Now, when I read, did you all go, what? Where did he come from? A priest of God most high in the land of Canaan? Hey, he was one of the faithful few still believing in the one true God from the lineage of Noah. There were still some people there that believed in Noah's God. He was a priest. He had access into the presence of God. He approached God on man's behalf. And that's why the New Testament calls him a type of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, Christ is called superior to the Levitical priests, which came after Abraham. And they compared Jesus to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Because Abraham, the Levitical priest descended from him, and yet the man who was the beginning of the Levitical priests is paying homage and giving tithes to this priest. And so Christ is looked at to be that superior priest in line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek calls God, God most high twice. And here's what that phrase means. We just think, yeah, God in heaven. No. Remember, there's all those false gods everywhere. God most high means he's up above them. He's the higher one. He rises above all those false gods. Melchizedek blesses Abraham with prayer. And at the same time, blesses God as the rightful deliverer in that battle. He delivers Abraham. Now, at this point, if Abraham was entertaining any thoughts that he was all that after that battle, you think he'd still be thinking that after he stood in front of this man of God and accepted his prayer of blessing and reminded him of the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Did you notice those are the very words Abraham repeats later on? God sent this king of Salem to encourage him, strengthen him to do what was right when he was about to be tempted by the king of Sodom. Abraham recognizes Melchizedek is a spokesman for God. He humbly receives the prayer and he gives him a tenth of all the goods of battle. And we get this picture of Abraham's faith mingling with the faith of Melchizedek and they lift their eyes and their hands up to God who was the victor of that battle. And now the king of Sodom steps forward. He's got a deal. Not a blessing. He's got a deal. Give me the people, you take the spoils. What a temptation. It's like he's saying, take what you see. You earn them. You deserve them. You could be rich. Touch them. This is your reward. But it seems 
that Abraham, as he prepared for battle, had also prepared for victory. And so he made an oath to God that he would take none of the spoils. So the king couldn't say he made Abraham rich. Abraham wanted God to get the glory. And guess what was the reward for Abraham? God. Not things, but God. Why would Abraham want to connect his name with the name of a king, of a Sodom, a wicked people that stood against the Lord? And why would he want to reap gold and silver and lose the blessing of God? So we see those two different attitudes as he stands in the valley before the kings. With the king of Salem, he shows dependence. He receives the blessing. He has a spirit of humility. With the king of Sodom, he shows independence. He rejects his deal and he does it in great dignity. Faith is able to recognize spiritual character. Faith is able to recognize temptation. Faith is able to resist worldly pressure. Faith relies on the gracious provision of God. Faith looks beyond the riches of this world to the grander prospects that God has in store. It takes a vision adjustment. It takes eyes of the heart. Abraham passed the test. We can too. Look at 1 Timothy Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Walk in faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for... Um, this amazing stories that just encourage us to remember you are the great provider, the great protector. You never leave us. You never forsake us. May we move forward in faith, understanding these realities, understanding your promises. May we gaze upon you with our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.